a joy to be able to preach to you. Any opportunity uh, to bring you God's word is, is such an immense privilege. So even though I am spending this time live streaming God's word to you through media avenues, I'm not disappointed um, because I get to share God's word and what God has put on my heart. We start, uh, started a few weeks ago in a series of unshakable faith, what we know to be true. And what we know to be true basically depends on what we know about God. How we view God determines our reality, and our reality right now may be shaken, but God is not shaken. That's why we have an unshakable faith, because we have an unshakable God. And this morning, we've looked at God's word helps us to trust him, to acknowledge God, to see God. So it is vital that during this time that we're shut in our homes, that we are apart, that we are accountable not to just the body of Christ and, and we're waiting for me to call you and say, how are you doing? Are you memorizing God's word? Are you reading God's word? But that you are accountable to our unshakable God, our God that is everywhere, our holy God. I pray that you're reading and spending time with him using this time wisely. Uh, there are so much more opportunity, many opportunities for you to spend time as a family, to be memorizing and to get to know God better together. This morning, I'd like to read Psalm 40. And um, so excuse me as I read, and I pray that you will be blessed from the reading of God's word. And as we do, I want you to see the point of what God is trying to make. And this is the point. As we read and as we pray, as we look at Psalm 40, I want you to get and grasp this point. The point is the object of trust determines the outcome of our emotional and physical well-being. Did you get that? The object of trust not your trials, not the pit of despair, not, not your circumstances of our life. This morning, let's pray. God, we, we simply come to you, the object that is holy, that is trustworthy, that is sure. You are our foundation. You are majestic. You are above all things. You are worthy. Lord, I pray that we wouldn't take that for granted, that, that, Lord, we can boldly come before you, but in awe and wonder. May we not take that for granted. Lord, our creator, the lover of our soul, our savior. And so, Lord, I pray that your spirit that regenerates our heart that helps us to see you, that spirit, your Holy Spirit, would you use yourself to calm our hearts, to enlighten our eyes, that we might know you, see you, love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. May our circumstances not take the strength of our heart, but may we be centered, focused, 
standing on the rock that is sure, worship you today. Thank you, Lord, for your sure and steady word. May it rightly divide and, Lord, penetrate our heart and give us the nourishment that our body needs. We love you, O Lord, our rock and our fortress, our ever-present help in the time of need. We thank you, Lord, for this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Psalm 40 declares this. David is singing to the Lord, and I want you to see this, that this is a song of sorrow, but a, a song of crying out, a song of praise. And this morning, as we read this, we'll notice that it isn't quite the upbeat that we've read before about how great God is, but actually, Lord, help us. Psalm 40, verse 1 says, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog, and he set my feet upon a rock making my steps secure. He put a song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. You have multiplied, O oh Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts towards us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than that can be told. In sacrifice and offering, you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear, a burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, behold, I have I have come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me. I delight to do your will. Oh, my God, your law is within my heart. I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips, as you know, O Lord. I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and of your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the con great congregation. As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will forever preserve me. For evil has encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me, and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let those be put to shame and disappoint altogether who seek to snatch away my life. Let those be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. Let those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, aha. 
but may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, great is the Lord. As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help. You are my deliverer. Do not delay. Oh, my God. This is a powerful psalm in so many ways. As we see, the, David is crying out from a pit. Some would say a pit of despair, a pit of persecution, um, a pit of being surrounded by great tumultuous enemies, emotions. I want you to notice, what is the pit? Did he describe the pit? Think about it. I want us to see three things about the pit. The pit could be a number of things. Number one. Number two, when the pit, when in the pit, you can become greatly tempted. Number three, how to get out of the pit. So, the pit can be a number of things. So what is the pit? When you're in the pit, you can be greatly tempted. And three, how to get out of the pit. Do you notice, number one here, David does not specifically or exactly say what the trials are in the first few verses. He doesn't explain it other than the fact that David is sinking deep in this mud, mud and this mud that is just pulling him down. I don't know if you've ever seen something like that or felt something like that. Perhaps David is also dealing with a thorn in his flesh. It could be people. It could be things. It could be circumstances. It doesn't really say. If we go down to verse 12 in our text, you see that uh, he, de he de kind of describes another pit that clearly involves consequences of David's sin. He's like, my sin has created this pit and I'm in it and Lord, rescue me from this pit. I, I need to offer things to you and I need to get right with you. And he's pleading to the Lord. Do you notice that he also kind of gives an example of the pit being enemies who surround him and want to destroy him in verses 14 and 15. It is in this moment, if you think about David, and you think about David is crying out to the Lord in this moment of despair. But the very fact that the exact details of those trials are not described shows us the importance is not the trials. It is not the circumstances that are behind the trials is the object altogether that is more important. I want you to see that he's always turning back to the Lord. I remember watching a thief one day. I was driving on, a, on the 101 freeway down in California, and it was around this lagoon that goes out to the ocean. And I always wondered how deep it was and the water had receded and I could kind of see a thin layer of water. But there was a high speed chase coming towards me in the opposite direction, right next to the lagoon. 
And this thief jumps out of the car, running away from the police officers that had surrounded him. And as he's running, he turns towards the lagoon. And I'm trying to think, what does he think he's going to do? Is he going to swim? Is he going to try to run? Is it deep enough that he can swim? Is it shallow enough he can run? I don't know. But he begins to run out into this lagoon. And he gets stuck. He only gets about 10 feet out. I noticed something, though, that none of the police officers went after him. He was now up to his waist, and he couldn't move, and he's crying for help. He's like, help me. I can't get out. And he's sucked in. In matter of fact, they couldn't get a boat to him. They couldn't get a, a, a rope out to him. They finally flew a helicopter out to him, and they lowered down the Coast Guard helicopter down and, uh, and slowly began to lift him out of that muck and that mire. It was amazing. All the thief cared about was getting away. All he wanted to do was to, and then once he got stuck, all he cared about was getting unstuck. I want you to think about that. I believe that this is the way it is with many of us. David shared the very stark truth about us that his trials were real. They were hard. And he was crying out to the Lord. But the importance wasn't in the trials, but rather in our text. It was running to something far greater. To the truth. To the truth that there is a great deliverer. We need to stop running, running in our minds, running in our thoughts, running in our activity. Sometimes that's all we can think about is I'm in a pit. I need to run. I need to get out. I need to get away from my trials. But we need to run to a deliverer. We need to cry out to the Lord. Instead of running, start crying and asking God, to save us. Just one last thought before we move on from what is the pit. Is I want you to think about this. You can never outrun your sin. Only God can deliver us from our sin. Behind me is the cross. That's why Jesus died on the cross is because we can never outrun any sin. If you've ever sinned, told a lie, for any reason, whatever it is, God is holy and we are not. There is none righteous, no, not one. We cannot outrun the fact that we are not holy. We need a deliverer. So Jesus came, the Son of God, God himself came, and he died on the cross to be our deliverer. Have you ever cried out to the Lord to deliver you from your sin? to save you. Knowing that we have a savior in the Lord Jesus Christ that died and rose again and conquered death to pay for our sin is the greatest deliverance we can ever have. It's the greatest cry, crying out to the Lord and saying, Lord, I need you. It's the greatest thing we could ever do. The second thing that I've, I mentioned is, is that when you're in the pit, you can be tempted towards proud or falsehood to get out of the pit. 
I don't know if you noticed in verse 4, it says, Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie, who run after falsehood. But when we're in a pit, it's easy. It's very easy, even though we profess Christ or trust in the Lord. At other times, to grab onto anything that seems to be a way of escape. Sometimes it's pride. Other times it's falsehoods and lies. Things that the world boasts, this can help you. King Asa is a great example in 2 Chronicles chapter 14. He was a good king who illustrated many reforms in Judah. When a million-man Ethiopian army invaded Judah, the southern part of Israel, Asa called out to God and affirmed his trust in God and said, God, help us, deliver us from them. And guess what? God did. Second Chronicles 14. But many years later, you'd think that he'd remember all the wonderful things that God did. After a long reign as king, God had really blessed him. Israel decided that they were going to come and destroy them. Asa sent tribute to the king of Syria. Rather than turning to God, he enlisted the help of his very enemy. Interesting, interesting, it worked. As Syria came down from the north, the king of Israel had no choice but to abandon his invasion of Judah to defend his northern flank. So Israel leaves and, and Judah is spared and Syria is paid. But Asa didn't trust in the Lord. He didn't focus on God. God was not the object of his deliverance. But a godly prophet rebuked Asa for relying on the king of Assyria instead of relying on the Lord. Second Chronicles 16 tells us about this. And in Asa's final days, he was plagued with gout. It was very painful, it, it says in verse 12. And, and yet, in verse 12, it says, Yet even in his disease, he did not seek the Lord, but physicians. Now, it's in Scripture for a reason that it says he didn't seek the Lord, but he sought the physicians. Now, I want you to understand, it's not wrong. I'm not pointing out it's wrong to seek out help from the physicians. In fact, just yesterday, my physician called me and I got to video chat with her and made sure that everything is going good. And it was kind of neat. In many ways, it's like what we're doing right now. But the point in God's word is this. It wasn't that the physicians were wrong in, in getting help from a physician. In fact, they're, God provided medicine and he provides us with great wisdom. It can be used wisely. The point is that the Lord was not the object of Asa's trust. He didn't trust God and then go see help from the physicians. The point of this verse in verse 12 was is that he left God completely out of his thoughts altogether. Let me say it this way. It's, the lesson is this. It's always wrong to put something else as more important than the Lord. To trust that more than God. Sometimes we think, well, this works, so I'm going to trust that. 
That is not always right. I want you to think about that. The way out of the pit, number three, is to wait intently, intently on the Lord. Waiting intently. David says in verse one, he says, I waited patiently. Literally in the Hebrew, it means this. Waiting, I waited patiently. Sometimes we focus on the patience rather than on the waiting. Waiting on the Lord is a common theme in scripture. For example, Psalm 37, verse 7 says, Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Rest. What a beautiful thing right now. Many of you are getting more rest than you've had in a long time. Take it and wait for the Lord. Verse 9 says, For evildoers will be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord will inherit the land. And again, in, in verse 34 of Psalm 37, wait for the Lord and keep his ways and he will exalt you. Well, what does it mean to wait? In our text, David gives us seven things that really explain this idea of waiting. In verse one, when he literally says, waiting, I waited, he's saying this. Number one, waiting on the Lord is an intense activity. It's not passive. It's an active thing. It's not a passive thing. The idea behind waiting, I waited patiently for the Lord is this. In the Hebrew, it's literally saying that he is actively waiting. He is putting action in his waiting. It's not this twiddle your thumbs, just I'm going to sit there and do nothing while I wait. It's you have to be active. You're expecting and hoping, knowing that God will do something. Remember Proverbs 3, 5, and 6? He says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not in your own understanding. Don't sit there and think about yourself and what you think and what the world thinks, but think about God. Trusting the Lord. Put your He is the object of your trust. And what does he do? He makes your path straight. He's already out ahead, straightening out the path, and we expect that he's going to do something. Are you actively waiting? Two, the second thing we can do, how do we wait? In verses 13 and 17, he describes and he says, waiting on the Lord means to cry out for deliverance, to be emotional, to cry to him. It's a sense of urgency. When it says, I cry out, it means that he's saying, help, Lord, I need you. Sometimes we think when we cry like that, it's, it's not right because I'm not trusting the Lord. No, we're crying out like Peter cried out when he started to sink. He says, Lord, help me. And God lifts him up. We need to cry to the Lord. It's the attitude of our heart. It's an actively looking for the Lord and saying, help. One of the reasons I believe in my heart that we don't look and cry out to the Lord the way we should is because many times we're looking at the world. How will the world, what is the world going to do? What is our government going to do? What, what is our police going to do? What are they not going to do? What do I have to do? We are so here on, a pla on this level earthly plane. 
but we're not actively looking for the Lord. So we don't cry out to him. The third thing that describes our waiting is this. How do we actively wait for the Lord? Well, it's active. We cry out. And waiting on the Lord means trusting in him alone. He's the only object of our trust. Verses 3 and 4. Waiting in the Lord means this. Lord, you are my only hope of deliverance. I can trust you. Literally, I know that you'll put my foot. Right now, my foot is sinking in this pit, but I know that one day my foot will be on a rock. I know what Christ has done for me. I know he is the rock. What are you building your life on? Is it sand? Our circumstances around us shift every day. But God is our rock. He is our fortress. He is our ever-present help in the time of need. Fourthly, waiting on the Lord means recounting his many wondrous and providential care. Have you thought about how wondrous God is? When we sit there, it's not ho-hum, sitting there just waiting for the Lord to take us out of the pit. As we, as we make God the object of our soul, hope, and desire of our life and our trust, you think actively, engage your mind, be actively intent on Man, you know what? I remember the Lord part of the Red Sea. I remember that the Lord delivered Israel from the mighty clutches of Egypt, the biggest power in the world. But it wasn't bigger than God. God delivered Israel. God put their feet on dry land. God put their feet in the land of Israel. God is to this, still to this day protecting them. Are you thinking about all the amazing things? I can sense David sitting here and he's in this pit and, and he's not looking at the pit. He's crying upward to the Lord. And he's thinking, man, God, you are amazing. There are too many things for me to think about. Have you ever just stopped and thought about everything that God is doing? That's what David was doing. So many times we're too distracted by the world to remember how amazing and wonderful and awestruck we should be of God. The fifth thing is how do we wait on the Lord? It's by obeying him. If we're awestruck with the Lord, we're thinking about all of his wonderful things. If he is our soul object of trust. We hope in him and nothing else. He is our solid rock in which we stand. Everything else is just sinking sand. We obey him. Did you notice what he said in verses six through eight? Sacrifice and meal offering you have not desired. My ears have been opened to hear actually what God wants. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, behold, I come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me. I delight to do your will. All of the wonderful things and realizing what God has done and what God wants. God wants David's heart. God wants David to be solely thinking and making God the object of his desire. And that's what David did. He says, I delight to do your will, O oh my Lord. 
as God becomes the sole object of his worship, he delights in doing what God wants. It's his delight, and he takes and he fills his heart full of God's word. Literally, you could say it this way. In one of the commentaries, it said this. It said, my heart is full of your abundant goodness towards me. How can I express it? In times past, I might have thought that an offering was the proper thing to do. But now I realize what you really desire is an obedient heart that delights in doing your will. If you don't delight in doing God's will, you might need to ask, where is your delight? Where is your hope? Where is your trust? Six, waiting on the Lord means seeking him. It's pretty simple. Verse 16, I love it. It says, but may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. The Lord be magnified. In this context, David is seeking the Lord as a synonym for crying out for him in expectant prayer. It's not that urgency of crying and, and shudder need, but it, it's, it's this seeking the Lord with expectancy. If David turned to some human scheme for deliverance, then David and his ingenuity would get all the credit. But see, when we seek the Lord, he is the object of the credit, of the worship. David did not do that. But seeking the Lord alone, when the Lord answers and he takes you out of your pit and trials, he receives all the credit. Lastly, waiting on the Lord means rejoicing in him. Verse 16, rejoicing in the Lord. Proverbs, or Philippians 4, verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. You see in verse 16 of Psalm 40, it says it's kind of the same idea. That all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, great is the Lord. In conclusion, as we look at this psalm, as we need to look to the object of our deliverance and worship him and him only. In conclusion, I want to say this. It's, I'm not worried why there's a pandemic. I'm not worried if God caused the pandemic or allowed the pandemic. I'm not worried if I get sick, if my family gets sick. I'm not being worried. That whole idea of not being worried is not just because I trust God, but because he is the anchor that holds in every storm, every kind of storm. And I know he will hold he holds me. He cannot break. He is the object that I hold on to because he holds me. It's I cannot hold God in the storm and make it. Some of us will put our ability to trust, say, yeah, I know God and I trust God and I know 
all this, you put the emphasis on what you know. But I want you to remember, it's the object that is more important than the actual trust. Because when I hold on to God, God is holding on to me. It makes a lot of things clearer in our lives and the fact that why some people struggle in these times and others don't. Sometimes people put their effort in religion and how good they are and not so much in who God is and that he will hold. As that song that we sing, he holds me fast. He will hold I've put together a list of questions and I trust that you will use them this week and right now as you meet in your home by yourself, you can use it to further study. But I would like to ask you, what are you holding on to? What is the object of your trust? Who is delivering you? Because in this unshakable faith that God has given us, he will hold us fast. God is to be trusted. God is our unshakable deliverer, no matter what the circumstances are. I will flash on the screen as we close and as we hear some beautiful music that Marianne was blessed with by God to share with us. And as we listen to that and as you see these questions, I pray that you will use them this week to further grow in your faith, being able to trust that you have an unshakable deliverer. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for our time. May you greatly instruct our hearts, even in time of sorrow, but Lord, may our eyes be lifted. May our gaze be singular. May the cross overshadow everything that is going on right now. Whether it's school, whether it's government, whether it's food. And Lord, may we not focus on the trial and what we need to do to get out of the trial but may we focus on how to trust you, to make you the central focus and the object of our worship. Lord, help us, I pray. Lord, we're crying out to you that this is in different times. It is much more difficult in many ways. In some ways, it's the same. It's just that we realize that we are no longer in control of our lives. But Lord, I pray that you will help everyone in their heart right now to realize that we were never in control in the first place. You have already gone out and made the path straight. Christ is coming. Lord, I pray that would be on our minds one day, soon and very soon, we are going to see the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. May we be ready. May our hearts be ready. Help us not 
run from the pits and the trials, but may our gaze and our heart be overwhelmed and full of joy of your wonderful deeds and purpose, that you are holding us fast, even during the storms of our life. In Jesus' name we pray.